The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. welcome you to follow as God's Word is read and have a Bible open. I think you get more from considering a sermon when you're looking at the Word and perhaps rereading it. I'm going to read from Luke 3 today as we've been studying this gospel. I will be selective. We're not going to cover every paragraph and portion of the gospel. In fact, this is the only message in chapter 3, and you say, well, I see that because there's a uh, begats coming, you know, there's a genealogy, and he's not going to preach on that. I actually have preached on the genealogy of Luke in this church years ago, but uh, that's not going to grab attention, I think, this time around. I'm going to read the first three verses and then jump over to verse 15, the whole section of 4 to 14 where John is urging genuine repentance is a very worthy section, but I'm choosing to focus on a comparison between John's baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is spoken of. So verse 16 is really our central focus today. Listen first to Luke 3, verses 1 through 3, and then to 15. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts, if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. 
And this is the word of God. Reverend Evie Hill is with the Lord now, but in the late 20th century, he was a renowned preacher in America, probably considered the dean of African-American preachers, perhaps, in our country. For many, many years, he was at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. E.V. Hill was a powerful man of the Word of God. And it's told, a little story I picked up one time, that he always gave an advance warning or explanation to any guest preacher who came to his pulpit, a big church with uh, many folks there. And of course, you know the, the entire culture of what happens in, in an African-American church when preaching's going on is a little different. The audience is uh, doing things, saying things, waving hands and saying encouragements and so on. E.V. Hill said, I want you to be aware of this one lady. She's a dear saint. She's right in the front row looking at you. And you need to be warned, preacher, you're not going to have a few sentences out of your mouth, and you're going to hear her say this, get him up. Now, if you wonder what that means, she's telling you, get Jesus up in view. Lift up Christ in your preaching. And if you don't lift up Christ in your preaching, in a few more minutes, you're going to hear, get him up. And if you don't get him up, you're going to have a long morning in the pulpit because she's not going away. Now, I thought about that, and I know there are people who take everything literally, so I'm a little bit fearful, but I would say that wouldn't be a bad idea to have clones of that lady in every church, and I'm watching for it next week. (laughs) Doug down here is going to have a sign. I'm going to see it right now. Get him up. But what if the preachers were always told, get Christ up? Maybe it would change our preaching. Well, Luke 3 marks the getting up of Christ through the voice and the prophetic oracle of John the Baptist, his cousin. It marks what you might call his inauguration, his coronation, his empowerment to his public ministry. And from this time on, Jesus steps out of the shadows of obscurity in Nazareth where he spent 90% of his life on earth for a last three-plus-year period in which he will always be in the center of attention. God appointed John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin, to get him up. And then as soon as he had done that and baptized Jesus, Pretty quickly, and a little note of it is here, although the full story awaits another text somewhere, where we're told John is arrested because he had criticized Herod for taking his brother's wife, and you know probably the rest of that story. John never left Herod's prison. He lost his head there. By way of introduction, I want you to just notice quickly verses 1 through 3 here, and I read them on purpose to remind you about Luke the historian and what he's doing, because it's several months now since back in November I introduced the the first passage of chapter 1 of Luke in which Luke told us how he was determined to search history, listen to eyewitnesses, search other records, and write up, he said, an orderly account. He wanted accurate history. Do you see what he's doing in the first three verses of chapter 3? Giving us the exact rulers in different places from Caesar on down to more localized territories and even the odd uh, father-in-law, son-in-law combination that were governing God's temple. He wants to locate 
the beginning of Jesus' ministry in history. So he gives us this list, and interestingly enough, we could go into each of these guys and talk about them. Every one of them was an ungodly man. Every one of them was power-hungry and greedy and cruel. And the conglomerate list seems to tell me that it looks like the world was run by a large group of tyrants when Jesus came into the world. And yet here we have the one who was the Lamb of God coming forth meekly and mildly and reminding us that the balance of power in the world wasn't exactly what it really looked like. Now, with this, we can do some dating, and the scholars have fun with this, trying to figure out from these different political reigns exactly when does this tell us Jesus began his ministry. And the best wisdom we have would say the very end of A.D. 26, more likely early A.D. 27, the early months of the year A.D. 27. You said, wasn't Jesus born in the year zero? A.D. 27, how could he be 30? In fact, the best wisdom would say Jesus was probably born. The best date we could pinpoint is about 5 B.C. And that puts him right at 31 years of age. And indeed, Luke says, about 30 years of age. And it bears out. Luke's a good and accurate historian. Now, the core of this text Once that's introduced, once he's anchored in time and space, real events, you know, just like the headlines of today, here was Jesus. The core of this text, as I want to look at it at least, is to see Jesus being first the recipient of a great baptism and then the bestower of a great baptism. And verse 16, as I said, is the core, especially this phrase, baptism in the Spirit and with fire. You all know John 3.16. We're going to zero in on Luke 3.16, a less well-known verse of the gospel. We're going to find here that as Jesus received this unique baptism, from that day forward, when people heard him and the Spirit of God worked through what he spoke and what he did, they were either washed of their sins by the power of the Holy Spirit, or they were burned in one manner or another, in this world or the world to come, by their unbelief and their lack of repentance. Now, first we need to briefly consider John's baptism and water baptism. I'm going to, my three points are structured around water baptism, spirit baptism, and fire baptism, if you want to see where I'm going. And the least attention will be on the water baptism part, but we need to look at it quickly. And observe that water baptism was God's advance warning message. It was important. It acts to, as far as what we're considering, sort of like an author's preface acts in a book. The author has a few essential things to say. They're introductory. They govern what comes next, but they're not the main heart of the book. John, of course, is the agent of this water baptism, a bold and fearless man, calling people calling men and women of Israel to turn from their sin, to turn around. The word for repentance we're always taught is one of the early Greek words you learn in learning Greek, metanoia. It means a complete turnaround. And John said you need to change and turn around in your posture toward God. 
And I didn't go over and won't go over verses 7 to 14 in which he demanded a repentance that had works behind it. Don't just come to me and say, hey, this sounds like a great religious experience for a Saturday afternoon. I haven't got anything better to do. Let's go out and find out what this baptism, you know, like going to the mud sale or something. Let's go out and see John's baptism. And maybe I'll even get baptized. It can't hurt. John wouldn't accept that. In fact, he called some people vipers and phonies who came and were just going along with the crowd. He said, you need to have works in your life that would show that your baptism is going to be real, that it's going to be a real uh, different posture towards God. God doesn't seek people to follow rituals. He seeks inward transformation, and that's true today, just as it was then. Now, many of you know that as 2011 unfolds, one of the big topics in our country is who's going to run for president next year. And boy, do words get generated over this. You know, talk shows endlessly, editorials, everybody's trying to see who's lining up and people are subtly jockeying to see who might support them and what kind of alliance might emerge and who's it going to be? Who will be the candidate? Everybody's got opinions. Well, I say that because that's a little bit of what was going on with John. He, he developed more notoriety as a religious figure than anybody had had for centuries, literally. And people were saying, who is this guy? He's amazing. He speaks powerfully. He denounces the traditions, the, the empty traditions of the temple and the rabbis. And wow, he's somebody. And people were starting to say, is John the Messiah? Israel had largely put Messiah expectation way, way back in their thinking, but John kind of revived it and brought it forward, and they were saying, could he actually be the Messiah? Well, as you know, John put that down pretty quickly. He said, no, I won't be your candidate. Was it William Tecumseh Sherman? They wanted to possibly tap him for president, and what did he say? If, if nominated, I won't run. If elected, I won't serve. Uh, that's what John said. I'm not your candidate. That tells us a lot about John, you know, the adulation that was coming to him, the fame. He could have easily uh, called the IRS and set up a 501c3 organization and received charitable donations and gotten on, said, hey, send me your checks and letters and I'll pray over them or what? No. He didn't do any of that stuff. In fact, he put himself in the lowest low place and made it very explicit. Don't build your expectations on me. You'll be doing the wrong thing. I'm not building a kingdom. And in fact, he used a figure of speech here that's quite interesting. You have to know that in the first century, if you were a formal student of a rabbi or or some teacher, you would almost live with that teacher. Uh, Respect for the teacher was very high. Students you know, it wasn't so much a formal university setting and so on. You just kind of got attached to this teacher, went around with him, asked questions, read what he told you to read, and learned everything you could learn. And as a result, because of even living in proximity, students would end up cutting the wood for the teacher and, you know, fixing his broken window or or whatever, whatever service they could perform for the teacher. Nothing was, was too too much to do. But John here is making use of a little little piece of first century knowledge because there were certain things that even servants or students didn't do. 
where a line was drawn that this thing is so low that only a slave does it. And one of them was handling somebody else's shoes. Don't ask me why, but culturally that was just it. A slave would do that. Even a servant or a student wouldn't do it. John said, you want to know who I am? You think I'm your candidate for Messiah? Let me tell you who I am. I'm not even high enough to be the slave who would untie the shoe of the person I'm pointing to. I'm not even worthy of that role. He is so much greater than I am. He's a worthier man, and if John elaborated, he said he would have said because he comes from on high. He's a holier man because he has no sin. And he's a man, the message of verse 16 is telling us, who comes with a better baptism, a superior baptism, than anything I can bestow. Because, you see, the baptism of John was external. It was water. It was symbolic. It affected the outside of a person. It didn't necessarily do anything to the middle and the inside of a person. Spirit and fire would do that. Now, if there's any lesson at all in in saying here that water baptism was God's advanced warning system, it is to remind you that today, water baptism, I don't care what form you receive it in or what age you receive it in or what methodology you received it, water baptism is never Christianity's main event. That's a big misunderstanding. If anyone is to parade their baptism around and say, oh, I belong to the Lord. Look at my baptism. I'll get the certificate out and show it to you. Water baptism is important. Of course it is. Jesus commanded us to do it, so we should do it. But it's a symbol that points beyond itself to a greater baptism that God must perform as he works divine redemption in believing souls. And that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Point number two, then. And this is the essential part, as Luke 3.16 speaks in the second place about another baptism that pours out the Spirit of God in fullness. I know you're like me. If you think about these issues, you've struggled maybe. Why did Jesus come to be baptized? He, He didn't need sins washed away. He was sinless. Why would he do this? I used to really struggle with this. And, of course, the best answer that we work out and we always say, and I think it's accurate, is, is that Jesus was coming to deliberately identify himself and put himself in the sinner's place even though he wasn't a sinner. Remember he said to John, it's necessary for all righteousness. Just we need to do this now, John. Don't argue with it. Now John was saying, I can't baptize you. You need to bat-. No, Jesus said, stop. We need to do it. Obey me, in so many words he was saying. And okay, Jesus was coming to identify with sinners, and that makes sense because ultimately, what did he do but stand in the sinner's place or hang in the sinner's place when he was on the cross? Well, that's, that's okay, but finally it broke through on me not so many years ago to understand the why of Jesus coming into the river with his cousin John. It didn't really have to do with the water baptism part at all. In fact, do you notice, and you'll see it's consistent in the other Gospels, notice how much, how little attention is put on the water baptism. Look at verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. That's not very dramatic. 
It just says a whole lot of people were baptized, and one of them was Jesus. Right on from there. No emphasis on it at all. Why is that so? Because verse 22 makes it very clear that the main event was not water baptism at all, but what happened next? What happened next wasn't just an appendage. It was the main event. In Mark, when Mark tells of this, he has almost violent language. Mark tends to use dramatic words. He said, the heavens are torn open, and the Holy Spirit descended in a visible way on Jesus. Here it says, as he was praying, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is not an anticlimax. This is the main event. The descent of the Spirit on Jesus was the baptism of great consequence that day. Now, you all know, unless you've been living under a rock somewhere, that there's a big wedding coming up in a few weeks. And besides the, the question, who will be the presidential candidate, the other question is, who's going to the big wedding? Have you got your invitation yet? Who's got one? Mine is lost in the mail somewhere. We're thinking about who will have, who is important enough to the royalty of England to have a seat reserved for them in Westminster Abbey as the prince marries his commoner now to be princess. Well, here we have an event before us that has the most august, high, lifted up, unbelievable attendance of any event in the history of the world. That sounds pretty exaggerated, but I won't take back any part of it. This is the only event clearly in the Bible where there are plain indications that God the Son was there in human form, God the Spirit was there in visible form, and God the Father evidently was audibly heard to be there. I don't know what that sounded like, and I don't even want to speculate. In fact, there's a whole discussion. Did only Jesus hear the voice? Did John hear it too? Did the whole crowd hear it? We don't know the answer. But here we have present the persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, as a baptism of the Spirit comes on Jesus the Son. Now, I was talking to Pastor Irvin as we were sitting back here praying before the service about this whole subject of Jesus being baptized in the Spirit. It's, it's got mystery with it, doesn't it? Because it's about the Trinity. And we say, well, what does that mean exactly? I can try to tell you what I think it means, and some of it's speculative, but I I won't go farther than the Scripture lets me go with it. Certainly, here was a real man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, before this time, he could have made the statement, in all the 30 years that he lived before, at any time, he could have said what he said later on, I and the God the Father are one. He could have said that when he was 13, when he was 17, when he was 26, and it would have been true. Why? Because of his virgin birth. Because of the Bible statements of his preexistence. At least on those bases, he was one with God. He was fully God. He wasn't just a man who had been tottering around in the world. You know, there's a whole heresy called adoptionism that says, oh, Jesus was just a man. And one day God tapped him on the shoulder, baptized him in the Holy Spirit, and made him God. No, 
Not at all. We're not saying that. Don't, don't mistake that I'm saying that. That is a heresy. Jesus was fully God and fully man before the age of 30, all the way through. The question is, the question of his insight, understanding, wisdom, and particularly empowerment to carry out the ministry Evidently, in this full investiture of God the Spirit upon God the Son, a great event was happening, a necessary event. I would even say this. Now, this is speculative. I try to be careful if I'm saying something speculative that I can't prove from Scripture, but I think that I'm within the understanding of Scripture to say Jesus would not have been likely to have done a miracle before this time in his life. I'm not ready to say that he couldn't, But I am saying I don't think he would have been likely to because everything he did from this time on was, and and often the authors of the gospel say, in the Spirit he came and did this. We'll see next time. We're going to look at chapter 4. Look at the first words, 4.1. Jesus, full of the Spirit, did this. It's very important that the Spirit filled him to overflowing. Now, there's other testimony as to this, this baptism of Christ in the Spirit, Acts 10.38. There in Acts, I believe it's Peter who's preaching there in 10.38 and says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth in the Holy Spirit and in power. John 3.34 has a very interesting statement where it says that only Jesus out of all men on earth was, quote, given the Holy Spirit without limit. Now, other people were given the Holy Spirit, right? Old Testament prophets. John, John the Baptist said, said at his birth, the Spirit was upon him from birth, we could read here earlier in Luke. So Jesus isn't the first person in whom the Holy Spirit stirred and did powerful things and so on and spoke prophetically. But he's the only one who was given the Spirit without limit. There was no limit on the way the Holy Spirit came to him. And in fact, so perfectly blended were the ministry, the words, the actions of Jesus from this point onward that later on you'll read in the Gospels about the Spirit of Jesus. It's, it's as though the Spirit and Jesus are, have merged themselves or joined themselves to do one work together. It would be right to say, if you hear me, Jesus was a different man from this day on. Now, you've got to be careful with that. Once again, I'm not saying he wasn't God before, and then he was. But his human exhibition of his Godhead was different from this day on. It's as though, it seems as though God opened up to him greater insight of what he was to do where he was to go, how he was to speak, and poured through him the power of the same Holy Spirit who was present in Genesis 1 at creation and stirred and changed the great deeps and the chaos as creation was put in order. Now, there's mystery. This is the Trinity, folks. There's mystery in an audible voice and how that came forth and where that came from. And those who want to debunk the Bible, God can't speak a voice. All right, go ahead and say that all you want. But a voice was heard saying, this is my unique son, I am pleased. 
with him. And it seems as if at this baptism, at this inaugural event for the ministry of Jesus, Father, Son, and Spirit, you might say, linked arms in one purpose and poured all their power and all their wisdom and everything that they were towards the accomplishment of the goal of the cross and resurrection to bring salvation to mankind. Jesus was baptized in the power of the Spirit. Now, that's only half of it. That's only half of my second point. Don't worry, I know what time it is. Because this baptism was not for Jesus alone, you see. What did John say in 3.16? He said, this one who comes is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What's that about? Oh, you say, well, I know what that is. That's those crazy Pentecostal people. Talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. They utter gibberish. They fall down on the floor. They jerk around. I don't want anything to do with that. Well, that is not baptism in the Holy Spirit. It isn't. That is not what John was talking about at all. What John was talking about, I could spell it out by just two New Testament reference points. Romans 8, 9 would be one. He makes a bold statement. Paul says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ... How many of you know what the next words are? You do not belong to Christ. If you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. The only way you could have Christ is through the Holy Spirit, is the whole teaching of the New Testament. Ephesians 1.13 is just a slightly different statement of it. Having believed, Paul writes there, you were marked in Christ with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He's elsewhere called a, a down payment on our salvation. He's the first work of God. You wouldn't respond in faith to God in the first place unless the Holy Spirit awakened your dead life, gave you new birth, showed you what it meant to be adopted as God's child, justified you, sanctified you, brought you through your entire Christian life and worked in you until what God was doing was perfected. It's all the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, John the Baptist could put people into water and and baptize them, but only Jesus could put the Spirit of God into a person as God worked through him. And I have to ask, I wonder if you know the answer. Have you experienced baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I do not mean have you spoken strange languages or fallen on the floor and jerked around. Have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Some of you will say, I don't know. I'm not sure. What does that feel like? What does that look like? Well, I'm really asking, is Jesus your Savior? If he's your Savior, you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, if your answer is, wow, I never heard about that before. That doesn't have to stay the same. You can trust in Christ today. You can say, hey, I've woken up to something here, and it must be the Spirit of God is showing me I need Christ to be my Savior. And And you pray and receive him in your simple faith. And you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not, it's not going to mean a wave of emotion. It's not a necessarily an experience, you know, as we have to have an experience It's a fact. God works salvation by the giving of his spirit. Jesus received it, and he bestows it. Very quickly, what's the last part of this text? 
For you see in 3.16 this other statement, that Jesus is bringing a baptism in the Spirit and with fire. I'll say it this way. Here is a baptism you want to avoid. Now, some commentators, a minority of them, will say, well, let's see, baptism with fire, what could that mean? Oh, they have Pentecost. They had little flames were seen. That must be what it means. No. You can all be better exegetes than that in interpreting the text of the Bible. That isn't what it means, and it's very obvious why that isn't what it means, because verse 17 tells you what it means. Baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire, and immediately the next verse talks about threshing wheat, separating grain from chaff, and tells you that's exactly what Christ is going to do. He will gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That un- without any doubt, that's an interpretation of what it means to be baptized with fire. Fire has symbolism of judgment and separation between true and false throughout the whole Bible. I could give you an arm's length list of texts that say that, but no time. J.C. Ryle was an Episcopal bishop in the 19th century. He was a solid man of God. Here's what he said one time about this text. He wrote this comment, quote, Believers and unbelievers, converted and unconverted, today are a mingled mass in every congregation of every denomination, and often they sit in worship side by side. Ryle said it passes the best powers of men to make a a clear and right separation between them. The wheat and the chaff will continue to be together until the Lord comes. But then he said there will be an awful separation. On the final day, as the unerring judgment of the king of kings shall at length divide them forever, the righteous will go to heaven's eternal safety while unbelief is bound for eternal shame and contempt. He's right on. That's exactly what this text is talking about. The baptism of fire is the effect in which the same Holy Spirit who saves and washes and justifies and brings alive and gives a Christian all the good gifts that we receive is a spirit who, if not received in faith, actually separates and even destroys in the end. Malachi 3.2 promised that God's Messiah would be like a refiner's fire, metallurgist illustration. Gold in a little smelting pot with the dross being burned off so the pure gold could be poured out then and treasured. That's what this is about. Every man, woman, and child on earth will receive one of these two baptisms of Jesus Christ. Either the baptism of the Spirit that gives life and safety and blessing or the baptism of the fire where your sin brings woe into your life today and brings more than woe in eternity. You see, true Spirit baptism by Jesus is intended to bless. But if you refuse it and refuse the blessing, it will curse you. And every time Jesus spoke the truth of the gospel of God, people were either washed and cleansed and renewed and given new life, or they started to know what burning was all about. There needs to be no terror in this text. 
If you belong to Christ, listen to the words of the Westminster Confession in, in part of the section on repentance. The fathers of the church wrote this. They said, there is no sin so small but that it deserves condemnation. Well, that's the burning part. However, there is no sin so great that it can possibly bring condemnation to those who truly repent and believe in the name of Christ. Amen. That is truth. People either, you see, get Christ up as the Holy Spirit teaches them and leads them to do so, or they refuse him and push him away. And there isn't any middle ground. One of these baptisms, both more important than water baptism, are going to be true of you. Either the life-giving baptism of the Spirit or fire. And you have to answer, which will it be? Our Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth that the man Jesus needed your Holy Spirit. This, this gives us wonder. We haven't figured this trinity out yet, and I know we won't. But, Father, the Spirit who spoke so powerfully and worked so powerfully in Jesus seems to be the same gift you give to believers. And what a confidence builder that is. To know that the same power that caused him to rise from the dead gives us new lives. Give us that encouragement even this week. May none here have to face him in the baptism of destructive fire. We seek your life and its new power to work in us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.